Father, we thank you for the beauty of this day. We thank you, Father, for the transitions from season to season, which brings something new in, into our lives. And yet, Father, we know that it's, it's not the weather, it's, it's not the environment that is important to us, but it's our relationship to you. And we're, we're told in the scripture that your mercies, your faithfulness are new every morning. Great is that faithfulness, and we're so grateful to you for that, because if it were not for your grace and for your mercy, we would not have the hope which you've put in each of our hearts. To you we submit this morning. We choose to bow our knees before the sovereign God and to ask you through the power of your spirit to minister to our hearts this morning. You know our individual needs. You know where there are hurts, where there are difficulties and problems, where there is misunderstanding, where there is ignorance, God meet us in those areas. And Lord, help us to, to constantly recognize that it is your work in us that enables us to serve you and to reach out and touch other lives for whom you have prepared us. Lord bless, I pray, every Sunday school class this morning, and may your name be clearly proclaimed and received. In the name of Christ, amen. Over the past uh, few Sundays, we've been looking at the tabernacle, and then the uh, last couple of Sundays, we've looked at the attire that was worn by the high priest as God uh, dictated to Moses what that attire should be. And uh, last Sunday, the focus was on the the breastpiece that was placed on the front of the high priest. And we looked at the various stones that were there. And uh, each stone was to bear the name of one of the tribes of Israel. And the high priest would go before God with those names on the stones. And, and this was symbolic of the people represented by those names. And so the priest would go before God bearing the, the people in his on his body, so to speak, and certainly in his heart and in his mind. And today, as we look further at, at some of the other uh, items that were worn by the high priest, we'll see uh, even more how this was emphasized. So if you will turn to the 28th chapter of the book of Exodus, I would like for us to begin reading at verse 31. Exodus 28, beginning at verse 31. And you shall make the robe of the ephod, all of blue. There shall be an opening at its top in the middle of it. Around its opening there shall be a binding of woven work, as it were the opening of a coat of mail, that it may not be torn. And you shall make on its hem pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet material, all around them on its hem, and bells of gold between them all around a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate, all around on the hem of the robe. And that shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its tinkling may be heard when he enters and leaves the holy place before the Lord, that he may not die. Now for us in our society, where especially up here in Northern California, where we live in a kind of a dressed-down society, Sometimes we look at this and we think, what for? I mean, you know, what's all this fancy stuff for? And I, I think as we, we look at this, 
God is in the program here of setting apart his high priest. He is to be unlike anyone else in terms of the garments that he wears as he comes before God. And I don't think from this we can interpret that God expects us to, to come to church in some kind of special church robes. But I think at the same time, uh, we need to understand that uh, God wants us to have an attitude. It's the attitude, of course, of the mind and of the heart that counts, that we, when we come before God, we're coming before the sovereign majesty of the universe. And, and it, it, it behooves us to have an attitude of reverence and of exaltation as, as we come before Him. And certainly that's the attitude that this is generating. You can imagine that all, as the people may have witnessed the high priest as he's bedecked before he goes in uh, to the tabernacle, that it helps them to focus on the fact that this is sovereign majesty here that we're worshiping. We don't just go flaunting in, you know, flying in before God as if it's no big deal to walk in before the king of the universe. What it does is it focuses the mind on truth. It's not the the yardage or the color of the yardage or whatever's hanging off the uh, garments that makes God pleased. It's the attitude that this helps to create. And, you know, just to kind of take that by extension, I think that how we dress, particularly if we are in service before the Lord, helps to focus people's attitude one way or the other. You know, I think if we dress as if it's no big deal, then people's attitude is no big deal. And I, I, I think that's kind of unfortunate sometimes. Here in this particular passage, we discover that the robe under the ephod was to be a kind of a basic blue linen garment. But it was unusual in the motif that you discover uh, in this particular garment. It was to be decorated with a pomegranate motif with golden bells intermixed along the hem of the garment. So as you looked at the hem of the garment across the bottom, you find that there's a pomegranate, then a little golden bell, then a pomegranate, then a little golden bell. And the pomegranates, we're told in the scripture, were made up of the blue, the scarlet, and the purple material. When, when we read verse 32, uh, it could be a little bit confusing where it says, there shall be an opening at its top in the middle of it, Around its opening there shall be a binding of woven work, as it were the opening of a coat of mail, that it shall, may not be torn. What we're looking at here is a garment that was put upon one as if it were sort of like a poncho. Uh, there's a head opening through which the head would be placed, and this garment then would drape over the body. And what it simply is describing there is because this head opening could easily be torn, it had to be reinforced. And, of course, that's very common if you've ever bought a poncho or anything like that. The neckline is usually reinforced to make sure that it lasts. And, and it describes it as a coat of mail. Now, in the time period we're talking about, which is 3,400, 3,300 years ago, whenever it was, they, they probably didn't have mail in the sense that, that we think of mail. That is, you know, the medieval armor of overlapping little pieces of metal that were sewn onto a leather garment. Probably what we're talking about is the leather garment, which would have been worn by a warrior and dropped over his body, under, over which uh, you know, some kind of metal might have been placed as a breastplate or cuirass or something. But uh, so, so that's the... Par the the parallel here. The parallel is that 
everybody would know what that garment looked like. And so that was the description here. It would be placed on the body in that particular manner. Now, what is the purpose of these decorations hanging off the garment? Well, you know, the, the pomegranates, uh, the pomegranate was a very, very delightful fruit. It was considered to be almost an exotic fruit in, in that part of the world. Now, I don't know, you've probably eaten pomegranates, as I have, and they taste good, but they are a whole lot of work, you know, <laughs> to eat. But anyway, they were considered to be an exotic, refreshing fruit, and, and of course, they come in a beautiful red color normally. And I think this is just a motif uh, that, that God chose that would be familiar to the people. But the tinkling bells had a purpose, which seems to be alluded to in, in this particular passage. The high priest wearing these bells, when he moved, the bells would tinkle. So he'd go tinkle, 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 tinkle. And of course, as he is in there before the Ark of the Covenant, I mean, once he goes through that second veil, I mean, he's disappeared. <laughs> And he's in there by himself before the Ark of the Covenant on the Day of Atonement, uh, grant, uh, giving the, making the sacrifice. And so his every movement of his arms and uh, of his feet would cause the bells to tinkle. And as the bells would tinkle, remember, we're talking about a tent here. So sound would go right through the walls of, of the tent. And those in the holy place, outside of the Holy of Holies, and even outside the tabernacle, could hear the movement of Aaron. And they could be offering their prayers to God as the tinkling was going on as part of the sacrifice that was being made or the blood that was being placed upon the uh, seat of the, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. It helped the people to know, I believe, first of all, that their gift was accepted by God. That the atoning work that Aaron was carrying out there was being accepted by God as the tinkling continued. If there was a big loud tinkling crash and then no more tinkling, <laughs> they would know that something very serious happened, of course. But this, this was a, uh, an ongoing thing. Some commentators say that the tinkling of the bells was a, a symbol of the Word of God being given forth. The Word of, the, of God being given forth here. Others feel that what it also symbolized was that God had accepted the high priest as he was properly attired as he came in before the presence of God to carry out the Yom Kippur sacrifice there uh, before the presence of the Holy God. Now, of course, we know later on that after 586 B.C. at least, the high priest, when he went in there, what did he go in there for? <laughs> there was no Ark of the Covenant any longer. And, and so there was no place for him to sprinkle the blood of the, of the covenant. And so it became much more ritualized at that point with relatively little meaning. And, and the whole concept of the atonement becomes prostrated here on the lack of the Ark of the Covenant later on. But of course, the Ark of the Covenant doesn't even exist yet at this time. It's going yet to be built. These are the descriptions of what is to be done by the Israelites. Verse 36, you shall, make, you shall also make a plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal, holy to the Lord. 
And you shall fasten it on a blue cord, and it shall be on the turban. It shall be at the front of the turban, and it shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And you shall weave the tunic of checkered work of fine linen, and shall make a, tur a turban of fine lin linen, and you shall make a sash, the work of a weaver. From this passage, we can recognize that the high priest had on his head a linen turban. Now, its exact form we do not know. Scripture does not tell us. It was, it's usually portrayed as some, looking something a little bit like a chef's hat, only uh, not quite so high and puffy, but lower like so, with this golden plate hanging down over the forehead and, and blue worked into here. It wasn't a mitre in the sense, uh, you know, that you think of a bishop or something having on his head, uh, as far as we're able to tell. What is important, though, about the turban is not the shape of this, this piece of cloth that was on the head of the high priest, but the gold plate which was attached on the front, which hung down right over the forehead of the high priest. Right here was this gold plate uh, that was on the front of the turban. And he is the only priest to wear that. All of the, none of the other priests had this gold plate. Only the high priest wore this gold plate as part of his attire uh, when he went in before the Lord. The scripture seems to indicate that it hung from or hung on a blue cord, probably the blue cord cordage at the very base of the, of the turban. And that was where it was attached and, and it rested down off the turban onto the forehead of the high priest. We're told in the scripture that it's engraved on this gold plate were the words set apart for Yahweh, holy for Yahweh. Again, why? You know, is, is gold something special to, to God in and of itself? Is it that God has to read this thing? And, oh yeah, that's right, you're holy to me. <laughs> no, obviously it has to do with attitude. Helping the, the priest to focus on his attitude. What is his attitude to be? The word holy, we know, means set apart, consecrated unto God. The plate served as a reminder. You and I constantly need reminders, don't we? Amen. As we look at the life, of the, the history of Israel, and, and we see how the Israelis went from this place to this place to this place, and as they went through these different stages, it, the scripture says they turned their back on the Lord, they chased after other gods, and the Lord sent punishment upon them in the form of an enemy, and, and then they would repent, and they would turn to God and cry out to Him, and He would forgive them, and, and they would again worship Him for a while, and then the next generation comes along, and they would drop away again, and it would be repeated. There's an old cliche that uh, flies around in, in many people's minds relative to the concept of history, and that is that history repeats itself. That's actually a philosophy of history of some. But obviously, history cannot repeat itself explicitly because we're dealing with different people all the time. But there is, within the human nature, <laughs> attitudes and, and, and actions which pretty much are the same. You know, whether you're Adam and Eve in the garden or, or you and I sitting here today, we have the same kinds of 
failures and weaknesses and pronenesses to sin. And so the reminders are needed. God needs to keep speaking to us. And sometimes you think that, man, God has to say some pretty basic things over to, over to me again. I, I need to be reminded of his grace. I, I need to be reminded of his mercy. Why? I mean, I know that basic those doctrines, and I know those truths, but why is it, it seems like almost daily, I need to be reminded of that? And that's because of, of our weakness and of our proneness to sin and our proneness to wander as the song. So here are the words, holy to Yahweh. And as the high priest put the turban on his head and that gold plate fell over his forehead, he would be reminded that he is holy <coughs> unto Yahweh. He is set apart unto God. He alone at that moment, has the privilege of walking in before sovereign God and putting the blood of the covenant on the mercy seat there as God then responds to a sacrifice on, beha on behalf of, of Israel. He is the mediator, the human mediator at this particular time for the whole nation when he went before the Ark of the Covenant. Israel was a covenant people. Israel had established a covenant with God, of course, because God had originally established a covenant with them. And, and, and God had pledged himself to Israel, and Israel had actually pledged themselves to God. The thing of it was, Israel often unpledged themselves to God, but God never unpledged himself to his people because God said, my covenant is forever with my people. And so God was always faithful, and his mercies were always there. But you know, in order to receive his mercies, mercy, we have to be receptive. We have to be willing to receive the mercy of God. We have to recognize our need for the mercy of God. And that, of course, is the whole point of the law. The whole point of the law, as, as we're told in Galatians, is to be a schoolmaster, to be our teacher, to, to be the teacher of the... Israelites, that they might know they have need of God's mercy and that they have need of a Savior, which, of course, would come one day. So Israel was to be a holy people. God said this many times, but when God commanded Moses to speak to his people and to give them the law, he said, speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's repeated several times through the Pentateuch. You shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, of course, God didn't mean that we, that his people were to walk around with little gold rings over their heads, you know, like this and be little angels all day long because that's not possible for a human being. But in our hearts, in their hearts, we're to be set aside unto God, which is what the word holy means, to be consecrated under, to be set apart for. And to me, that's a real important attitude that we have to have every day, whatever we're doing. You know, whether it's at work, behind the wheel of the car, uh, at play or whatever it is, that we are God's people. Therefore, we need to think differently and act differently and be different from the world around us. We, we can't just blend in and be like everybody else. And the closer we walk with God, the less we want to be like everybody else. I mean, how many of us want to be like these people we keep reading about in the newspaper, you know? Get arrested for growing a 
crop a pot someplace, you know, or end up 20 years in prison because you killed your mate or whatever, you know. Who wants to be like that? I mean, not just in the obvious things, but even in the attitudes. And that's a heart decision. Israel fell short of the holiness that God expected of them. The scripture teaches us that we all fall short of the glory of God. Scripture says that there is none righteous, no, not one. So we all are in the same boat, folks. <laughs> none of us can throw somebody else overboard because we say, we're all holy in here, you get out, you're screwing it up for us here. You know? we, we can't say that. And, and, of course, one of the worst things we can be is, is a self-righteous individual who goes around pointing at everybody else's sin. Now, I'm not saying we, need to t we should tolerate sin. The Scripture makes it very clear that if there is obvious sin in our midst, we're to go to that person or persons and, and we're to try to deal with that in, in the biblical manner. But we don't do it as if we are some kind of righteous, pious people who have never done anything wrong. In fact, the best person to go to someone who's caught in sin is someone who has dealt with that sin in their own lives. And they know what it is, and they know what it's like. And they're able to go and, and minister, hopefully, to such people. Israel fell short of the holiness of God. Therefore, Aaron became the mediator, a human mediator, who interceded with God on behalf of his people. Now, it seems very strange, but we read this passage in Scripture in this passage just a few minutes ago that tells us that his intercession, in effect, wiped out the sin attached to the offerings of the people. The people's offerings were not pure because the people weren't pure. And evil people can't give a holy offering. The offering is tainted by the sin of the people. Therefore, Aaron had to go in and intercede on their behalf. And God accepted his intercession. And God, in his mercy, washed away the taintedness of the offerings and made them holy in his sight and thereby made the people holy as he saw them. And that's the critical part of what it is to be a child of God. His righteousness is imputed to us. We haven't earned it. There's not a thing we can do to earn the righteousness of God. Because how can unrighteous people earn the righteousness of God? It's impossible. It's like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Try it sometime. It just doesn't work. It's got to be the gift of God who gives to us, imputes to us, righteousness by His sovereign choice and based on the faith that He's placed in our hearts to believe Him. And so these offerings that were tainted because the people were unholy in nature, even as we are, those offerings were made acceptable to God by the intercession of Aaron as he went before God on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Once a year, and once a year only, could the high priest go before that or go through that second veil and stand there before that little box, that little box called the Ark of the Covenant. But we're told that as those angels' wings arced over that box, there, right in the middle, between those two golden cherubim and over the top of the mercy seat, the voice of God came forth and spoke to the high priest and received the gift that was given of the blood of the sacrificial lamb. It was, out of, it was because of obedience that God poured forth his sin-cleansing mercy upon his people. 
there's th this whole concept I think is better understood for uh, by us if we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 reading at verse 13 Therefore gird your minds for action keep sober in spirit fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that comes right out of the Leviticus uh, proclamations. And if you address as the as if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown, before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now as I read that passage, I, I think we see what really is the ultimate purpose of this whole sacerdotal system, uh, this the system of priests, that was established for the Israelite nation. It, it was the whole purpose of it was for the people to understand that God accepted them not on the basis of the fact that they could do works of righteousness that he would therefore accept, but that they came on the basis of faith in the blood of the sacrifice. And then as they lived that faith, their works would demonstrate the reality of that faith. And they would demonstrate that they were a holy people by living not according to their former lusts, but in ways that were obedient to the law. Paul tells us, however, in several writings, particularly in Galatians and in Romans, that they couldn't live perfectly according to the law. That, that if they could have, then there would have not been a need for a Savior. But they couldn't. But the law helped them to know they couldn't. And that's what the Scripture does for us. It helps you and me to know that every day we stand in need of God's mercy, His cleansing, His forgiveness. But that He's willing to give it. In fact, He can hardly wait to give it to us. He's not up there about ready to pull us up by the, by the collar and smack us across the face because we did another you know, evil deed or thought an evil thought or had a bad attitude or whatever because that's, you know, otherwise we're going to be pretty beat up. You know, if that's where the case. And I'm not saying God won't every once in a while slap us up beside the head. That's usually because we've been hard, hardened of heart, you know, stiff-necked, and we're going in this way and we just simply won't listen to His Spirit and, and won't allow Him to turn us around. But in our, in our daily acceptance of, of his mercy and of his cleansing and our recommitment as holy people to him, uh, we, we keep ourselves in that place where uh, God can work in us and God can work through us and God can make his... Well, I always like to view it as if we're some kind of a mirror. 
And the more that we actually endeavor to live in His mercies and grace every day, the more highly polished is that mirror that can reflect the reality of who Christ is to others. Otherwise, it gets all mucked up and cloudy and, and people look in there and they think, they can't see Christ in our lives because we're not living in obedience. In this passage in Peter, notice in the first verse that I read to us um, a few minutes ago, verse 13, it says, Therefore, gird your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think we can almost picture this, this golden plate on the forehead of the high priest as he went in before God, where it says, Holy unto Yahweh. And that plate was to enable Aaron to what? Gird his mind. It was there to enable Aaron to be sober about his task as mediator of this first covenant and to place his faith in God's grace. So you can put Aaron right into that verse. He was to gird his mind and keep sober for the purpose here and, and put his hope, fix his hope in the grace of God. When he went in before the mercy seat to put the blood on there, his trust was in the fact that God would give his grace to him and to his people. It was so different, so different from the pagan religions where these sacrifices were made to appease the gods to try and hope that the gods will be happy and won't destroy them today. But here, to go before God to receive grace, to receive that mercy that he so willingly gave to his people. When you think about it, you realize that how much God will do in response to so little on our part. You know, if, if we just allow him to put a measure of faith in our hearts, he, he responds in an overwhelming way. You know, it's not like we got to clean up our act and get good here before God will do the littlest thing for us. No. God does wondrous things. I've, I've just been amazed at what God will do uh, through a life that's just, you know, opened a little doorway, a little crack for him to, to do his work. And still, you know, there's that human stubbornness and the human willfulness that's still there that, that often allows us to step on one another to offend one another, to not care about one another, to not pray for one another, all kinds of things in our lives. But hopefully the longer we walk with God, the more he's going to polish that mirror, which means we care about one another, we pray for one another, we reach out in whatever way he would have us to do. But I think in all of this, we need to be reminded of the fact that as First Peter, as we're told here by Peter, that that mercy... And that grace that came from God was not earned by Aaron. When Aaron went in and put the blood on the mercy seat, it wasn't his action that forced God to do this. Aaron himself could not merit anything. It was the blood of Christ, if you will, that brought the forgiveness and the cleansing. Remember this verse we read just a minute ago here in this passage in verse 20. Talking about Christ. Well, let's look at verse 19. But with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. 
That means, as I have tried to emphasize before, God did not create the world and mankind with plans A, B, C, D, you know. And if plan A doesn't work, he goes to plan B. And if plan B doesn't work, he goes to plan C. Creates the world not knowing what these people are going to do. Puts them in the Garden of Eden and just kind of watches and see, you know, to see what they're going to do. Not, you know, totally in the dark. What are, we, what are they going to do? Are they going to be obedient to me? Or, uh, I mean, God knew before he ever created the world that Adam and Eve would turn their backs on him in the Garden of Eden. And so, you know, what can we say? If we had been God, we'd have said, forget the whole thing. I'm not going to go with this program. But, but God did not. In his great mercy, I mean, he already gave his mercy to those who would believe in that Christ was already agreed upon as the sacrifice before the world was ever created. That's what it says right there. Before the foundation, he was foreknown in his sacrifice, in his death, before the foundation of the world. Now, for us, that's hard to, hard to understand because we are the slaves of, of history. We live within the flow of time. And I cannot know what 24 hours from now for sure is going to happen. I can give a guess as to, I mean, a pretty good guess as to what I'll be doing 24 hours from now, Lord willing. But, but who knows what really will happen 24 hours from now, you know? But God knows it all from before the beginning of time till after the end. I mean, God doesn't live in history. He's not subject to the flow of time. You know, we think, sometimes people think of God as Father Time, you know, with a big gray beard and old crook here, you know. And God's getting old, you know, doesn't live in time. And there's almost no way for you and I to understand how that can be because we've never known what it's like to live outside of time. You can't even describe God without talking about time. You know, well, last year I knew God in this to this degree, you know. I gave my heart to the Lord X number of years ago. I mean, everything is penetrated with time. Although Christ's death, death was not yet a, a historical fact, the merit upon the basis of which Aaron went before the mercy seat was the merit of the blood of Christ. Christ's blood had not yet flowed on the cross in history but in the minds of sovereign trinity, it had already happened. And so the whole sacrificial system, from whatever forgiveness God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden to the end of time, was all based on the blood of Christ. Because God looked at history through that blood, although not yet shed from our point of view. But fortunately, God doesn't look at things from our point of view. Back in the... 28th chapter of Exodus, in uh, verse 39, we read in the latter part of the verse that this, lint, this, this turban, this turban about which we've only had very little description, we're, we're told it was to be made of fine linen, and so we can assume that it was white or, or near white, had at least a blue cord on it, and had at least this, this golden plate that hung on the front of the forehead. But that same verse also describes other, an, uh, another part of the um, high priest's attire. And this was a basic checkered linen tunic, which was to underlie the ephod and underlie the blue tunic even. So what we have here is a basic checkered tunic, whatever that checkering meant, which was on the body 
over which was placed the blue tunic over, with, the, with the pomegranates and the bells, over which was placed the ephod, upon which was the breastplate, and then the turban on the head. This is the basic description here. Now, most of you are familiar with the fact that there was a man who lived in the first century whose name was Josephus. Josephus was a priest, a Levite, a member of the Levitical tribe, who lived in the northern part of Judea, in Galilee, and not in northern part of Judea, but up in Galilee. And in the war between the Romans and the Jews that took place between 66 and 73, he was uh, the commander of a, of a force attempting to defend the city of Jotapa, Jotapata in, uh, in Galilee. And that city was ultimately overtaken by the Romans. But according to Josephus, he and some others uh, drew straws as to who would kill whom in, in their mass suicide, sort of like what happened later on, on Masada, after the Romans had made their penetration. Well, it came to him and the last fellow, and they kind of agreed not to kill each other, but to surrender to the Romans. And, and, they so and so they did. And then once he was captured, according to Josephus' own rendition, he prophesied that the commander of the Roman army would soon become Caesar, become emperor of Rome. Well, the commander of the army was Vespasian. And uh, Rome was in the process of tremendous chaos at this time. Uh, Nero had committed suicide in the year 68. And immediately following his suicide, there was a series of three emperors who, who came in very quick order. And a couple of them were military men, governors of Roman provinces, and the other was a senator. And, and they were killed very, in, in very short order. And so the throne was coming open, and Vespasian, of course, apparently had some designs on, on the throne. And so when he heard this word of prophecy from this Jewish priest, he said, you yeah, know, I kind of like you. <laughs> and, and so he took him on as kind of a liaison between him, himself and, and the people. And Josephus would go on to try to convince the Jews there was no use fighting the Romans, and therefore he was considered to be a traitor by the Jews. And so he ended up going back with Vespasian, ultimately, to Italy, where he would live out his life, and he would write his famous works, The Antiquities of the Jews and The Wars of the Jews. In his Antiquities which is an attempt to write the history of the Jews from the beginning up to the time uh, in which he lived. And, of course, if you read them, you discover you can, you can take the Bible and, and open to Joshua or Judges or the Samuels, and, and you can follow along pretty well what Josephus says. But Josephus, in his antiquity, states that the high priest was to put on very first, the very first thing he was to put on, was a waist to mid-thigh undergirdle. And in verse 42, which we haven't read yet of this passage, I mean, because it goes on to a, a different description, but let me just look at verse 42 here for a minute. It says, And you shall make for them linen breeches to cover their bare flesh. So that's in this passage. And Josephus, of course, is describing the high priest in the day that he knew and we can assume that hopefully down through the centuries they've maintained the basic garment uh, that was worn by the high priest. So this, this, these briefs <laughs> that were to be against the flesh were first to be placed on the high priest. And then after that, over those 
breeches was placed the checkered white garment, which reached down to the feet of the high priest. This, this basic tunic underneath hung clear to his feet. And then on top of that was placed the blue tunic, and then the ephod, and then the breast piece was put on there. Now, this passage tells us that there was a sash. And Josephus tells us that everything was tied together finally by a four-finger wide sash that was tied probably just above the waist here, tied together in the front, the purple and the scarlet thread woven into it. So it fit with the ephod in terms of its appearance. When fully attired, with what we have described here, the priest would have been a striking figure. Can you imagine what he would look like coming in here today with these, all these jewels on, the, on his ephod sparkling in the light here and the beautiful colors that were woven in. I mean, because there was gold woven into the, to the ephod amongst the other colors. Gold thread was woven in there. It, it, would be, it would be a very, very striking garment. A unique dress which set aside the high priest as the one and only person who was given the authority by God to come in that one time each year to put the blood, of the sacrificial blood on the mercy seat that the people of God might receive atonement. The dress was symbolic of his position, but it was also symbolic of the unique eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. Because Christ gave himself, as we well know, as a one-time, ultimate, all-sufficient offering and the hardest thing for us to comprehend, I mean, we can talk about it and we can say it, but how do we really put it together? Jesus Christ was the high priest who brought the sacrifice, and yet at the same time, he was the sacrifice. He was the lamb that was unblemished. He was the high priest and the sacrificial lamb. He was the one who brought the blood, and it was his blood that he brought. It's very, very difficult to comprehend. In Revelation, we're told of the lamb that stood as if it were slain. The, the actual description in there is, if, uh, is this lamb has its throat cut and the blood is, is down on the wool. And yet it's standing alive. Christ was able to do this, of course, because he had no sin. He was the perfect high priest while at the same time being the perfect sacrifice. Christ's high priesthood we know from Scripture, was not after the order of Aaron. But instead, he was after this mysterious order of Melchizedek. And the question is, who was this Melchizedek who met Abram when he came back from the slaughter of the kings? Now, those of you who are with us way back when, when we studied the 14th chapter of uh, Genesis, will remember. But I'd like to turn to Hebrews chapter 7 and uh, read those verses again because I think they're fitting here. Melchizedek is one of the enigmatic uh, figures in Scripture. But I think the author of the Hebrews makes it pretty clear who he was. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then also, 
king of Salem, which is king of peace. Salem, shalom. Without father and without mother. Well, that makes him pretty unique right there, right? He, along with Joshua, the son of Nun, you know. Without father and without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed are the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected the tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. It's the way God views things. We, we wouldn't view Levi as much in there at that point. I mean, Abraham was the father of Isaac, who was the father of Jacob, who was the father of Levi. And we think, whoops, that's kind of far apart there. But, but God views it sequentially in this way. And to God, the flow of time is nothing. And, and so Levi was, in effect, the son of Abraham. And this passage, I think, leaves us no doubt that Melchizedek was a theophany or, more specifically, a Christophany. He was an, a manifestation of Christ in the flesh um, before his time of incarnation. And I think as we look particularly at this passage, we discover, of course, that Abraham, who was called the friend of God, was designated father of the chosen people. And in Genesis 12, we're told that, that in him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And so as we look at this, we discover that the one who was the friend of God, the one who was the father of the chosen people, the one who was the blesser of all mankind, was subordinate to this king of Salem, Melchizedek. Now, in the eyes of the Hebrews, whoa, you know, who is greater than Abraham? Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And even the priesthood paid tithes to this Melchizedek in that they were in the loins of their father Abraham when he paid tithes to Melchizedek. And we're told that not only this, Abraham died, but Melchizedek lives forever. Any Hebrew who reads this book of Hebrews if they have the slightest opportunity to have their minds and hearts open, should see the truth here of the meaning of the whole Old Testament and the reality of Jesus Christ as Messiah. It is truly glorious for us, I think, to know that our great high priest is not a human being, is not a faulty person such as you and I are, but the perfect Son of God. And your salvation and my salvation does not depend on our pastor or our Sunday school teacher, Lord forbid, or any other human being. Not the Pope, not the Archbishop. It depends on the death of the perfect high priest, the perfect unblemished lamb, the Son of God. And, and as such, we have to view all human beings as on the basically the same plane as we are. 
Now, we, we shouldn't elevate certain people up here and, and think that they're somehow more holy. I mean, they're subject to the same kind of problems we are. Just read what happens. Get Christianity today and you discover what happens to pastors and, and others if, if, they're not, if they're not focused on God and if people aren't praying for them, tragedy can strike because they're no different than we are. Well, in closing, let me just read these last verses here from uh, Hebrews Chapter 7, verse 26. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, that Aaron and his successors, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, and in the true tabernacle, that is the true church, which the Lord pitched, not man. You and I are part of the true church, which God created, not man. God will preserve, even when man fails. We don't have to get down and say, oh God, the church is going to the dogs. Well, certain institutions may be, and certain individual groups may be, but the church of the living God is triumphant and will prevail and We'll survive and we'll conquer. And we don't need to worry about that. But we certainly do need to try to build up the local body as God would use us and to pray for the church worldwide.